Hello, welcome to this bonus episode of Ocean Matters. I'm Izzy Clark, the producer of this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, and these podcasts are a chance for us to revisit topics and explore extra content from the main episodes. In our most recent episode on fisheries, we heard about the impact that fishing has on the ocean. But fishing is also having a huge impact on the lives of humans. Slavery, abduction and even murders are taking place on fishing fleets around the world. And as these crimes are being committed far from land, they are unknown or perhaps even unthinkable to most of us. Ian Urbina is a journalist for the New York Times and is director of the Outlaw Ocean Project. In what began as an award-winning series in 2015 in the New York Times and a resulting book, the Outlaw Ocean is a non-profit journalism organisation that produces high-impact investigative stories about lawlessness at sea and the diversity of environmental, human rights and labour abuses occurring offshore around the world. I spoke with Ian and he started by telling me about some of the problems he encountered whilst reporting at sea. So it's it's important to first distinguish which boats or ships we're talking about. You know, if you think of the the world at sea, you know, you have near shore boats that those are typically fishermen that go out for a day or two at, at a time. Different lifestyle there, not as brutal. Um, and then sort of distant water fleets tend to divide down the middle between merchant marine, you know, vessels that carry stuff versus uh, long-haul fishing vessels. The most brutal, the most dangerous ships you'll find are these distant water fishing fleet. And those are the ones that we focused on the most. And they're brutal because it's not a high-profit industry. They're out at sea often for very long times. The workplace itself is sort of an industrial setting that has, you know, skating rink slippery floors that move up and down like an elevator, you know, 24-7 and seesaw side to side and usually under monetized, if you will. So there's not a whole lot of spare capital on hand to put protective gear on the workers or make the machinery safe or clean up the workspace or even carry antibiotics, you know. So for all these reasons, um, it's a very dangerous line of work. And you recount of one story where you were on a vessel like this and you were sleeping in vessels like this. So what can you tell us about the sleeping quarters? Because there was you had a shocking experience that I certainly would not have coped in that situation. Yeah, this was the story uh, on the South China Sea. So that's the body of water near Myanmar and Laos, Cambodia, Thailand. We were taking a close look at uh, this problem of sea slavery, so captive workers on fishing vessels. We had wanted to get out to uh, certain type of fishing vessels, the ones that stay at sea for sometimes over a year or two. We finally found, made our way out after a couple weeks of trying to the perfect vessel, so to speak, which had, you know, 40 Cambodian deckhands and five Thai officers. And we sort of talked our way on board, spent a good 20 hours documenting the work and life and people on board and ran out of steam and just needed some shut eye. And uh, there was a translator and a photographer with me and we um, tucked ourselves away in the back of the ship in this nook that 
seemed to be where all the Cambodian boys and men, some as young as 13, were suspended from the ceiling in these makeshift hammocks that had were essentially converted nets. And we sort of puzzled over why, what's the point of laying in a hammock if you're only three feet off the ground. This this nook was not even a full room. You know, the ceiling to floor was maybe four feet, you know, so you couldn't stand up. You had to crawl in there. Anyway, we sort of tucked ourselves under some of these guys' hammocks and we quickly found out why you don't sleep on the floor and you sleep even just a couple feet off the floor. And that is that when the bustle stops on the ships, the rats take over and we were awoken by rats running over us and, you know, turned on my headlamp to see hundreds of rats all over scurrying in and out of bags and dishware. And, but none of them were crossing the hammocks. They, so there was almost a detente uh, between the rats and the crew, but they were crossing everything that was on the deck, uh, including us. Uh, so we sort of shimmied our way out of that spot and climbed to the top of the boat and tried to prop ourselves up for a little bit of sleep. Gosh, okay. And obviously with that comes infection, skin disease, vermin, all of that, which all of these crews have to deal with. And what pressure are these crews under in terms of the work that they are doing and in some cases forced to do? You know, fishing is this funny thing. Historically, it's an industry, it's a line of work that has kind of been given a pass when it comes to many of the modern progressive protections. From Dickensian 19th century to now, we've come a long ways into in terms of what what's allowable. But fishing, because you're out at sea, out of the reach of governments, uh, and also because you're chasing this herd of creatures under the waterline uh, and the unpredictability of weather, the unpredictability of finding that herd of creatures or the school of fish, if you will, um, has given fishing more leeway. To answer your question, you know, the, these crews are typically working in really intensely long stints. You know, when they come across a school or they're in the fishing grounds, they might work 20 hours straight before they have maybe a two-hour break and then they're at it again. In terms of the bottom quarter of the brutality scale, these uh, fleets, and there are tens of thousands of ships that fit this description, they're typically dealing with trafficked migrant workers. So quite often on these ships, the crew do not speak the language of the officers. That's a big deal because the communication and cultural gaps there stoke violence. And then there's this unusually rigid hierarchy, even more rigid in some ways than the military on ships. You know, captains are not bosses, they're God. Officers from the captain on down are outnumbered. So if you're dealing with 40 crew, 40 Cambodians, and five Thai officers, the Thai officers are probably over the age of 40. The crew are all under the age of 25. There's a serious risk of mutiny, and that stokes fear, and the fear stokes preemptive violence by officers at the beginning of ships to show that if there's even a whiff of insubordination, there will be dire, sometimes fatal consequences. These are clearly abuses of human rights, so is this the situation everywhere or is it in certain locations or certain types of fisheries? Certain locations, certain types of fisheries, certain countries, you know, um, you know, I think the risk factors um, that make it more likely that you'll find these sorts of conditions are 
heavily subsidized, bloated fleets that have not modernized and they're still sort of using brute force tactics to fish, you know, cheap labor, using a type of fishing, a type of gear or boats that are way outdated. It's usually often another warning sign. Fleets that are heavily dependent on manning agencies, these labor recruitment agencies that that go out and find you the workers from other countries. And um, that's a heavy risk factor. And then fleets that tend to stay at sea for extremely long times and offload their catch via something called transshipment. So offloading their fish to another boat that brings it back to shore that allows the fishing boat to stay at sea for really long times, another risk factor. Uh, and then certain flags um, are sort of famous for having the lowest oversight and cheapest rates. And that's another risk factor because the folks who incline towards those flags um, are probably doing so because they're trying to save money and not, you know, have prying eyes of lawyers or um, flag registry officials. Yeah. Themes that come out through the book are that there is this level of lawlessness at sea. And the things that shocked me the most, I guess, were sea slavery and the abandonment of crews. So, Looking at sea slavery, how do people become enslaved? And can you tell us more about the work that they're forced to do? So slavery is this charged term, and it's always, I think, important to start by attempting to specify what's meant in its use. I think in sea slavery, what I refer to is a spectrum of capture, right? A spectrum spectrum of abuse. And on that spectrum, you have maybe two poles. On one end, you have those people who are, they have decided to take a job on the vessel, but they are enslaved through debt bondage. You know, so they've signed a contract where they owe a certain amount of money that they're going to pay back through their labor, and they're therefore not allowed to leave a place or a job willingly until that debt's paid back. That's a form of modern slavery. The other end of the spectrum, the other pole is shackled and shanghaied, you know, so a person typically, this is a very male world, so I'll use gendered terms here, but, you know, typically a man or, or a boy is drugged and then kidnapped and wakes up on a fishing vessel at sea and there they are stuck. And in one case that we delved into quite deeply, sometimes these folks are even shackled um, so that they can't escape. So that's the spectrum of slavery, right? So a typical scenario in Thailand is you have a middle-class country in Thailand, less than 2% unemployment. You know, Thai citizens don't tend to want to take the two types of jobs that are robust industries in Thailand. So the sex work industry, those are not typically Thai women or girls. They're typically import uh, migrant workers from surrounding countries. Um, same thing in the fishing side. Those are not typically Thai deckhands. The geography of Thailand is one in which you have Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, very poor, conflict-ridden, ethnically divided, outpushers of workers, of citizens, desperate for opportunity. And then in Thailand, you have a middle-class, stable, problematic, but you know, much more endowed, developed country. So you have a perfect 
situation for migrant import workers. And most of the industry is populated by those very trafficked workers who come in, often thinking they're going to work jobs other than they end up in. They're promised a job in construction for the guys or a job as a domestic maid for the females. And that's not actually where they're destined. They're destined for sex work or they're destined for fishing. And they get brought in. They incur a debt on the way inbound. They show up at the port now there's some muscular guys, some of them armed, some of them have already shown themselves to be pretty thuggish and violent, and they're marched up onto a ship. These guys, the import migrants, don't even know what's being said. They don't speak the language. All they know is that they're being told to get up there, move up, you know, get on the ship, and they have a debt to pay, and off they go. And then we also have this problem of crews being abandoned at sea. So how does that happen? So this is where you hop over the fence to the other realm of distant water fishing fleets, quite especially into the merchant marine. Merchant marine is a different realm. Just to sort of decode that term, think of oil freighters or grain carriers or cargo ships that bring our iPhones and shoes. And this is the merchant marine. They carry stuff. It has a union presence. There are more often contracts. It's um, uh, often sort of certification and educational degrees that are required to work on those ships. The abuses are not of the same sort, not even of the same frequency those workers do run into a big problem whereby they're typically owned not by huge multinational, multi-billion dollar endowed companies like Maersk, but rather smaller companies that are less known, less well endowed financially, less likely to have insurance, etc. And something happens. A ship hits a harbor in some place or a pier and gets hit with a huge environmental or property fine. Someone sues a guy or a company and whatever. Something changes and overnight the owner or operator of that ship or of that fleet decides to cut their losses and declare bankruptcy and sort of disappear in the wind. And the guys who are on those ships out at sea or anchored a mile off port um, are stuck. They don't speak the language of the local port. They don't have papers to get off. They don't have fuel to get home. No one's answering their radio calls, their cell phone calls. They run out of bars and currency on their phones, no clean water, no food, and they're stuck. You know, And it's this sort of ghoulish, ghostly existence that they find themselves in that can last years and desperation gets dangerous and you know guys jump overboard try to swim to shore drown sneak into the country get arrested enter a whole new gulag and you know on any given day there are thousands of people that are stuck in this awful place I appreciate that they're at different levels but those who are either enslaved or stuck on these large freight ships how do they find a solution how are they either freed or able to come on shore. So in sea slavery, the most common way that people escape are they jump off the ship and when they're within eyesight of land and they run away. And that typically triggers a really high stakes cat and mouse game, if you will, whereby the captain who sees that worker as 
property. You know, they paid money for that person to come on board. They, they paid off the trafficker who delivered them. They're owed a certain amount of work from that worker. And those legs belonging to the worker just ran that property away, right? So they put out a bounty, often with moped drivers because their eyes and ears everywhere. In some local community, maybe it's the coast of Myanmar or Borneo or wherever they are, Indonesia, um, and they say, here's a bounty. If you can find this guy, here's his picture. We still have his passport. And those bounty hunters scramble. And then on the flip side, if the deckhand is lucky, there might be an organization like, you know, Stella Maris or one of these small charities that specializes in the anti-trafficking um, problem, you know, the you know the anti-trafficking realm, and they get word that there's a there's a fleeing deckhand in some area near such and such port, and they need to find him first before the other guys find him and secret him, spared him away from harm as quickly as possible, so he's not captured and taken back. What is being done to hold those accountable for all of these situations and? What has happened since you exposed the issue in the New York Times as well? Well, I mean, a lot, a lot's being done and a lot's not being done. Categorically, the kinds of things that have been done and should be done more, companies quite especially are the real culprits. You know, the, the market players that benefit from the cheap and impossibly efficient um, way that this industry works are the ones who are directly benefiting from these hidden costs, you know, that they choose to look away from. And until companies are willing to look at their supply chain and really reckon with the fact that in their outsourcing of responsibility to all these other subcontractors, they are allowing, even encouraging this sort of behavior. And until they impose rules on their own supply chain, uh, it's not going to change. Governments are obviously key stakeholders categorically and um, could be doing more as well. You could write laws, but they're only as good as their enforcement. And that's questionable whether they can do a whole lot in these international waters and other ports and foreign workers and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, their ability to do a whole lot is limited, but they could do more. And then, you know, there's other ancillary players like the media or like buyers, donors, taxpayers, you know, average folks like you and me, who through their small actions collectively can apply pressure on governments or companies uh, to sort of clean up their act. And, and that's part of where journalism comes in. You know, you've seen all of this firsthand. So what change would you like to see? I'd love to see some of the huge players sort of take this on, let's say we're the EU, okay? So the EU is a sort of government structure. It can do a lot. It serves dual roles. It both makes rules as lawmakers and government entity on players that are associated with it, that touch its shores, et cetera. It also is a buyer of stuff, right? And so in both of those capacities, the EU could say, okay, if we're going to take any tuna, any shrimp, whatever, start squid, start with the big ticket items. If we're going to take any of that stuff into our borders, if we're going to buy it for our military bases, our school, public schools, we're going to require that it complies with certain things. And we're going to hire a bunch of really smart 
supply chain experts to tell us what those things need to be so that we can have a much higher confidence level that there isn't illegal fishing, dumping, slavery, murder in the very processing of this stuff. You get the smart people together, they impose, They say, okay, here's your white paper on what you got to do. It's going to be a nightmare. It's going to be costly, but we got to do it because we are not a place that likes child labor and murder and forced labor. So here we're going to start rolling it out, requiring it through law on lots of companies, requiring it through our ports, requiring it from our tax-infused purchases of our own. You know, if the EU or if the US, you know, decided to do that, it's not impossible. You know, look at, uh, you know, blood diamonds, look at dolphin free tuna, look at sweatshop garments. You know, like there are, there's precedent for people stepping up. It costs, it's a headache. You get pushback from industry, you get pushback from buyers, uh, prices go up. But, you know, it's part of civilization, you know, like, uh, uh, yes, we could do things cheaper. Uh, We always can do things cheaper. But isn't there a price that we should put on, you know, fundamental values? Thank you to Ian Abina, journalist and author of The Outlaw Ocean. That's it for this bonus episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow Ocean Matters for free wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And next time, we'll be meeting the marine drifters that are keeping our ocean healthy. That's plankton. What are they? Why are they so important for our ocean ecosystem? And would there even be ocean ecosystems without them? I'm Izzy Clark and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation.